we will make this quick because we know your time is valuable. The Dairy Strong Conference is January 16th through the 18th in Green Bay, Wisconsin, a new location. And we'd love to see you there. You can learn more at dairystrong.org. You, your farm, and your future matter to us. Welcome to Dairy Stream, a podcast focusing on opportunities and challenges impacting the future of dairy. This podcast is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, sister organizations fighting for sensible dairy policy in Wisconsin and Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Joanna Guza. We encourage everyone, farmers and non-farmers, to listen to Dairy Stream so we can share experiences from the experts in the dairy industry. If you're not involved in agriculture, thanks for tuning in to learn more. For our agricultural friends, did you know that three out of four consumers trust dairy farmers? And that is driven by transparency and sharing with consumers how dairy milk is produced, the humane treatment of animals, and the connection to the local community. Today, we will be transparent and talk about the challenges and successes of the 2023 growing season with two dairy farmers. I'm joined with Greg Franchu. He's the owner and operator of Franchu Farms with his brother, Brian, and son, Nathan, in Clear Lake, Wisconsin. The farm consists of 1,250 cows, their young stock, and 3,500 acres of cropland. They implemented no-till, cover crops, augmented manure, low-disturbance manure injection, variable-rate fertilizer application, and they love to plant green. I'm also joined with John Vandenboom. He's part of the agronomy team at Wholesome Dairies, which consists of two dairies and at each dairy roughly milking 4,000 cows. The farm operates around 5,000 acres of cropland consisting of mostly corn silage and alfalfa. It has become a major focus on the farm to implement low-disturbance manure application, manure application on growing crops, and cover crops. Both Greg and John are members of farmer-led watershed groups. Greg is a member of the Western Wisconsin Conservation Council, and John is a member of the Calumet County Ag Stewardship Alliance. We will drop a link in the description so you can learn more about those two farmer-led watershed groups. Well, to start our conversation, John, I'm going to have you go first, and then Greg, if you want to share your insight after John, can you take us back to the spring of this year? What conservation practices did you have in place from the fall? This spring, we had a lot of winter rye. Uh, That's always our our big go-to cover crop. So we had a, a lot of winter rye in there after corn silage. We had a very early wet spring, so we were glad to see those those cover crops in place because March and, and early April, at least where we're located, had a lot of a lot of precipitation. So having those cover crops in place was uh, definitely a good thing to see in the, in that time period. Right, and so John's located in northeast Wisconsin. Greg's on the western side. Greg, you know, take us back to the spring. What conservation practices did you have in place from the fall? Well, we uh, we also had the right cover crop in place. Our soil has five years of uh, no-till and five years of low disturbance manure along with the augmented uh, manure. So our tilth, our uh, structure and everything is such of having that established ahead of time and then um, ready to set the stage for the spring planting. So we had the conservation practices in place. You know, what were some of the challenges that you faced this spring? John, I'll have you go first and then Greg, if you can add. I hinted that we were really wet um, going into early spring, and it, it was just like a light switch. 
weeks from from early spring where we usually you know maybe try to do some spring manure applications that it was it was difficult there and then we we started planting season and just like that the the precipitation stopped so although we had some some cover crops that, that were doing a, a great job early spring, uh, we also ran into problems really quickly because like a light switch that we, we ran out of precipitation, our ground really started to dry with those cover crops growing. There were there were new challenges that we that we maybe haven't seen before on, on some of our, our heavier clay ground where we started to run out of moisture really quickly because it, it was such a dramatic change. No two years are ever the same, but it, it, we really started learning how to how to manage cover crops on a, on a different realm, where we went from r- really too wet to to too dry really quickly. And John, you can never predict Mother Nature, but what would you have done differently? So, if you would have known that it was going to get really dry after that, what would you have done differently? There wasn't a lot that our farm particularly would have done differently. We harvest a lot of our rye, uh, so so we really we use that in our heifer rotation. So we're we're trying to get the rye in there for to to help with soil, and and it, it does a great job there. But we're also taking a secondary benefit of feed off of there, and we do have some rye that that's not for harvest, and we work with a lot of growers too that. You know, take manure from us and they're putting cover crops in and, and they have the rye and we did see in a, a few situations where farms tried to maximize the growth of the rye and, and really uh, get a lot of organic matter out there but with this weather situation it, it definitely used up some of the moisture and then we saw our the seedling time period for for corn especially really really zapped some of that moisture and that corn really struggled. We saw the farmers that were out there terminating the cover crops a little earlier. We definitely saw a gain there. It was really really obvious where if you were out there limiting the growth of that of a cover crop whether of anything that's that's overwintering that that was a, a big deal this year. Greg what were some of the challenges you faced this spring? Yeah, it was the same on the western part of the state. You know, some of the neighbors didn't uh, terminate it in time and they had uh, germination problems. We kind of got on taking care of the rye in time to, to conserve some of our moisture, although towards the end of the season, I dropped the seeds down a little bit deeper into the soil to, to be able to grab that moisture. And it seems like if you get that, that uh, corn to start, it'll go down and get what it needs to get going. You both have mentioned about planting, soil depth, can you walk me through what you did differently this year or maybe things like common practice that you made sure you knew where soil moisture was and then how deep you planted that corn seed? Uh, Greg, I'll have you go first. We generally plant about our corn at two inches, but uh, as it gets drier, you, you have to plant down into moisture. So we went down, we only had to go down to another half inch, maybe three quarters, and it seemed to work out well. Yeah, and I, I don't want to sound like a broken record repeating everything Greg says, but uh, we, we so we have this, the same thing here where, without a doubt, you needed to be following the planter uh, here more than more than ever and, and checking how far you're planting and making sure that seed is down into moisture and, and firm moisture. We saw it on on different with different planters. Doesn't doesn't matter. You needed to be making sure and taking time to make sure that seed was in in moisture. And, and it seemed like every day we were going another click on the planter and going down another quarter inch every day. Sometimes a half an inch. And and we were we were definitely pushing our seed down further than we've we've ever planted actually some of our some of our depths. So but you had to watch even on, on the knolls where there was maybe a little less moisture checking that depth and and you could see that guys that weren't 
you'd have a, a field where germination was perfect across the field and then you'd get to a knoll where they weren't pushing in the ground and then all of a sudden there was no corn until they got a got a rain and you had patchy patchy fields but if you were able to keep pushing that the seed down in there it, it, it definitely made a difference. Greg do you want to add something? I wanted to back up a little bit and, and share something that I learned with the cover crops. I like to plant green and I like to have quite a bit of rye on top to cover the soil and in the last three years in our area we've been dry after the spring it, the rain kind of shuts off and I think that's important because um, when the corn does start to, to get stressed a little bit later in the season and it's short of moisture if if you've got shade on that field you're conserving moisture and, if, and one of the things that I've learned is that the corn will stop and slow down its maturity if it doesn't have enough moisture well if you have that cover on the soil and conserve that uh, little bit of moisture that you do have, it allows the crop to continue. So I think our, our corn didn't get stalled out as far as maturity this year because of that. Thank you for sharing that insight. Now let's talk about nutrients or fertilizer in the field. John, I'll have you go first. How did you maximize the nutrients and fertilizer in the field? Every field is a little different. Uh, with our dairy, we obviously have a lot of a lot of manure that needs to go out that we need to be applying. And we try to maximize everything we can out of the manure, getting as, as much uh, nutrients as we can. We have it we have it there, we, we wanna maximize that. So I guess I'll, I'll just speak on our, our rye where we, we harvest a lot and then plant corn afterwards. It depends on the situation this year. We try to do as much as we can where we no-till right into the rye stubble and then we will apply manure uh, after planting over the over the top of the corn that's been planted. We try to do that as much as we can, although this year we ran into issues where we could not physically get the seed into the ground planting. Our clay ground uh, after about two days after harvest, it dried so much with the, the heat and the, the dryness that we physically could not get our planter into the ground without breaking. We were having, there's little um, carbide pads that rub on the on the disc openers and they were getting so hot they were they were falling off the seed tube protector in, in front of our planters were breaking uh, the the ground was just so hard we could not not plant so we ended up then putting manure uh out on the field first and then letting it dry hitting it with a vertical till and planting just we had a little more loose ground there but we try to maximize as much as we can getting those nutrients on that that corn in spring we we really like that um springtime that growing growing crop utilizing those nutrients that we have it, it really really seems to make a difference compared to other fields so john with that challenge what was your application method and how much were you applying on the fields so we're usually uh de depends on the, the farm and the source so we have uh, multiple pits at each farm um, the manure flows in the one pit as that fills up it then flows over into the second and third at, at, at our elm location that gives us different types of manure essentially where the solids can settle out in the first two pits and the the, the second pit or the third pit is is very thin manure um, so the, the solids content and the the nutrients in that is, is very thin so we tend to put that on our growing crops a little bit more but usually we're in that eight to 12 range when we're when we're applying in spring and we try to do at least in spring with our with our rye we try to do as little tillage as possible so if it's dry and soaking in that, that's a 
that's a dribble bar application where we're just dribbling the manure on, you know, especially with the, with the corn that's planted first, that's usually what we're doing is we're, we're, we're using that dribble bar and, and just letting it soak in in the ground. Now, Greg, how did you maximize the nutrients or fertilizer in the field? Well, with the no-till year after year and, and the other practices that we have, we try to have our soil health um, to be very good. And we're just hoping that this, with the soil health, it grabs onto the nutrients and holds them until, until we need them. One side note, the augmented manure. One of the products of augmented manure is, is the uh, bacteria in the manure will eat the, the salts out of the manure, or basically break the salts down. So our soil ha- doesn't have a lot of salts and that, that allows for the nutrients to, to, to be more easily grabbed on by the soil. Greg, can you explain what augmented manure is in the process? Yeah, it's just it's just simply treating our manure with an an, uh, anaerobic bacteria. So as it sits in the manure lagoon, the bacteria are are at work eating the manure, you know, uh, breaking the manure down. So we're taking it one step closer to being ready for the plant when it uh, delivered when it's delivered out to the field. Now let's move into the summer. Any conservation practices that you implemented over the summer or got ready? Uh, in the summertime frame, John, I'll have you go first. Summer is always a, a big time for us to try to get as much as we can, I guess, manure on on growing crops. I mean, that's when your your crops are growing. Obviously, we're we're trying to put it on on the corn as close to the growing or after it's planted as we can. But then with, with the summer, with our digesters and and batting with solids and and the different stages, we put a lot of manure on hay ground. So after in between hay crops is probably one of the locations we put as much or more manure on on that type of ground as as any other. So we really try to maximize that. And with as dry as we were this summer, we saw huge returns on giving that alfalfa a little bit of moisture. We're not talking a lot, but it, I mean, if we can get 10, 10 to 12,000 gallons of manure on there, it's enough to just give it a little, a little, I guess, perk, and it, it kind of greens up faster. And we saw a huge, huge return on that compared to fields that do not get manure. I mean, there's always little chunks of fields that that maybe don't get manure, or there's too many acres, so some get it, some crop. And there was definitely a huge return in that putting manure on those hay crops. John, I know in your description you have manure application on growing crops. Can you tell me what kind of equipment you're using to put it on the growing crop and your the success you've maybe seen with that? My go-to toolbar with manure is is a dribble bar. I, I like whenever we have conditions where we have a, a growing crop or a cover crop where we can where we can dribble that manure on, get across the field doing as little as possible. That that's my my ideal the ideal scenario. Of course, surface applications where you're not incorporating and stuff have, have bigger setbacks and stuff for certain areas, but it, it's still my go-to. I, I just, I, I really like what it does when we have drier conditions in a growing crop. We've really tried to do as much as we can through that. And Greg, any conservation practices you all did at, over the summer? Well, we grow our own rye seed that we use for our cover crops. So the acres that we grow that rye seed on, we, uh, Harvest the rye, harvest the straw, and then we'll come and direct uh, direct seed our alfalfa into those acres. Mm-hmm. So that's about it in the summertime. Did you all see any issues or challenges with the Canadian wildfires? Did you think that had uh, impact on your crops, John? I'll have you go first. That was the that was the talk. You know, everybody's uh, what did this do and that do? What did the dry weather do? What did the smoke do? And I don't have anything that that's telling me 
boy, the, the, the smoke did th this or that to the crop. You know, we just kind of went over all of our silage yields here for all of our acres and grower acres and stuff for as dry as we were, we had very respectable, very, very respectable yields. So, you know, some people were saying, boy, the, the wildfires saved some of the moisture because it wasn't zapping it all out. And then some, you know, we some were saying it, it delayed the crop a little bit. And I think it screwed with our two-way radios whenever we had smoke. I couldn't. Our two-way radios were horrible this past year. I don't know. Maybe we just got to look at our radios. I don't know. That was just in my head. <laughs> Greg, from your perspective? Well, I was in the camp that the that the smoke was helping us. The you know the forecast for the day would be 95 degrees and sunny, and but they would note that if the you know if the the line of smoke ha you know stays above, then it'll keep us cooler. So we actually had a whole week of smoke, um, and just 30 miles away they had uh, 95 and sunny, and uh, my cows were appreciating it, and I think that my uh, my corn was appreciating it as well. Right. Well, I'm glad it didn't cause a lot of problems. And, you know, it's the little things on the farm that make a big difference. Can you share with us what practices you've implemented, you know, those little little things that you've implemented that's helped with your sustainability journey? John, I'll have you go first. It seems like every year, you know, you got, obviously you got to think back of all these, these things we've done, but it seems like every year there's maybe, you know, something new where, you know, this year, I guess this past fall, we're able to put in more cover crops or, or reduce maybe the tillage where we have done something different. It, it seems like every year we're trying something, we're trying something new and there's always new equipment out there to look at. And I guess that's one of the things I love with uh, Watershed Group is that, you get to see somebody or hear from somebody that that's tried different equipment or different practices before you have to try it and, and you get to learn from it. So um, without having a total disaster, you can kind of hear from people and, and see what they've done. It's more than just one or two things. I mean, it's, it's a constant trying different practices. And Greg, from your perspective? To add to what John had said, the, you know, every year is different and you find a practice that works one year doesn't mean it's going to work the next. So trying to perfect your system to have um, protocols in place that will uh, work nine or 10 out of 10 years. That's, that's kind of what the end goal is. We appreciate Greg and John sharing their experiences, even when it can be difficult to share those challenges. Farmers are doing their part to produce a sustainable product, and that is what consumers want. About 45% of Americans want to be seen as someone who buys eco-friendly products and you're hearing it right here how two dairy farmers are doing just that we will continue our conversation talking about the growing season in the fall and future plans so make sure you stay with us we will be right back with dairy stream after we hear from our sponsor Dairy Farmers of Wisconsin exists to be a tireless advocate, marketer, and promoter for Wisconsin dairy farmers and to drive demand for Wisconsin's dairy products. The organization represents Wisconsin farm families and works to increase the sale and consumption of Wisconsin milk and dairy products, as well as build trust in dairy farmers and the industry. Organizational initiatives include generating national publicity, managing digital advertising, and driving sales, distribution, and trial through the retail and food service promotions. Dairy Farmers of Wisconsin also supports in-school education about the benefits of dairy and funding for the Center for Dairy Research at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. For more information and to sign up for our monthly newsletter, visit wisconsindairy.org. 
Dairy Stream is brought to you by the Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative. The second part, we're going to talk about the fall growing season and future plans. Greg, I'll have you start the answer this time first. Can you reflect on this fall, the good and the bad, and what conservation practices you have implemented? So the weather, we'll start with the weather because uh, the weather can make or break what you're trying to do. It was a great fall for us up here um, in northwest Wisconsin. Uh, we had a one little stint of moisture, but other than that, the harvest came off nice. And then we started, uh, we worked into our manure and that came off without a hitch as well. So the practices that we've implemented, same as, the, as we've been trying to all along, which would be a rye cover crop. And then we augment our manure and we put it in with low disturbance tool. Um, we use variable rate manure. Before we go to John, were you satisfied or happy with your yields this year? Overall, I think we're just a little bit above average on, on most of our acres. We've got two regimes. We've got the stuff that, that uh, we reach with manure, and then we've got the further outfields. The further outfields were a touch above average. The manure fields in our, in our dairy circle, they would have been average for them is, is quite a bit more than the outer fields, but we got blasted with a heat event. In fact, we started one chopper out a week early, and as soon as we the the we found out what the moistures were, we added another chopper to to uh, catch up or try to get all the silage off. So our actual silage yields were down a little bit because of that death event. But if but if that stuff would have finished out, it would have been a a, a dang good yield. Uh, John, can you reflect on this fall, the good and the bad, and some conservation practices you added? The first thing I guess to touch on with this fall is you could not buy better uh, harvest fall, in my opinion, with, with silage and I guess planting our, our rye and our, our winter wheat. It was absolutely perfect. I mean, normally we, we're, we're worried about putting compaction in, harvesting, uh, you know, some, some silage. Uh, everything came off as, as quickly and uh, efficiently as you, you could ask. It was bing, bang, boom, perfect. So that, that allowed us to get manure out and allowed us to get wheat, winter wheat in and rye in. I mean, there was no waiting for rains. Everything just went so, so fast and easy. So that was ideal. Yields, I'll touch on this a little bit. I mean, they were way better than, than I was expecting. And I, I think that's kind of a trend that we saw starting harvest winter wheat in the area. The test weight was way better than people were guessing. They thought that the test weight wasn't going to be there. The yield was there for wheat. And then going in the silage, the silage looked really good. The, the grain and, and even the, the beans all, all together did better than, you know, t talking with, with growers and farmers in the area. Everybody thought it was going to be down quite a bit from what it was. So that was all very, very nice to see. As far as the, as far as what the fall did for the, the, our, our conservation practices, like I said, getting in the winter rye and the wheat, we were able to get winter rye in, in every silage field we had. Uh, we have some corn grain fields where harvest was just really, really late. Um, so we're talking, it's getting too, too cold and stuff for that. But every, every silage field was able to get a, was able to get a cover crop in and able to get going. So we, that, that growth I think is really important in fall. Um, so, I mean, it was just the perfect ideal fall, in my opinion, for getting anything done in a field. John, you shared a lot of good. Any any uh, challenges this fall? Well, you know, we were a little worried about the, the winter wheat getting started because there was a lack of moisture, but then we, we, caught, a, we caught a rain. I mean, that got going. <laughs> I, there was little to no bad I can say about this fall. 
Good, good. I'm glad to hear that. I know that was kind of a common theme I've heard around Wisconsin, too, that it was a little bit easier fall this year. What conservation items are you planning to implement in 2024? Greg, I'll have you share first. Well, it's always, I think it's kind of a challenge. You know, five. I, I think the ratio is five out of 10 years. It works well to get rye established after um, soybeans um, just because of the timing. And then it's also tough to get rye started in combine corn as well. So I thought about putting a machine on my on my combine and throwing the seed out there as we combine, thinking that covering it up would uh, throwing it on top and covering it up might might get a good start or at least increase the odds of getting the uh, the rye started. So that's what we're going to try. Where did you hear of that idea, Greg? I just came across another company that builds a unit that goes on a combine, but. Uh, I don't know where I, I heard it, but I've, it's always been in the back of my mind. How can I get that? How can I get that to happen? And I think that might, like I say, increase the number of years that it would be effective. Are you the first farm in the area that would try this that you're aware of? In our area, yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And now, John, what conservation items are you planning to implement in 2024? We're going to continue continue pushing. You know keeping something growing and alive as, as much as we can in the in the field. I think our one of our big focuses is going to be so not all of our manure goes on just our fields. We work with quite a few growers that grow feed for us and and purchase manure from us. So I think a, a big focus is going to be kind of working with them and, and getting manure on there and working with them to get their cover crops in. It's been a big switch the last couple of years to and it's still switching, but it always was, let's get the manure out. And then if we get a cover crop, that's great. Now, um, and in and, and falls like this, definitely make it easier where you're not worrying about it being so wet. But I think it's switching to let's get a cover crop started and then worry about how we put the manure on to keep that cover crop going. I think that's kind of a, a big switch we've had with our with our growers and, and with us. Obviously, we have to make sure we're we're handling the manure responsibly, but that's a big switch I think we've, we've kind of seen. And I think going forward, it's going to progress even further. John, have you ever looked at different ways of applying your cover crops, uh, like different methods you could try? Yeah, so we've done, like I said, so m- most of our most of our, our rye that we're using for cover crop purposes also gets harvested. Um, but we once in a while we'll have a field we we know is not going to get harvested. So there we will lighten the the seeding rate up, and sometimes we will uh, spread that out and then just you know vertical till it in or no till just with a lighter rate. There's a lot of a lot of growers have done the spreading of the rye, right? Right. I mean, the day after the chopper leaves, they're spreading rye out there and then they vertical till real lightly. That's that's become real popular in the area with a lot of guys as a cheap way to get something growing. And, and this year we saw a little bit, I will say, I guess, if you were drilling it in or, or no-till drill, that definitely made a difference with the rye versus broadcasting and, and vertical till because a little drier. That seed wasn't necessarily by moisture right away. But yeah, we've seen planes too once in a while, uh, flying it on with planes. Success stories are a little plus and minus with that, so I, we it's not been as common. What about drones? Drones, I have not have not seen yet. I know there's a there's a couple of uh, people we work with that have been getting into drones. Uh, we work real closely with them. They the chemical rep for a company, so they've been working on spraying with drones, especially fungicides and different plant growth regulators. So we haven't seen the, the cover crops with drones. I, I can see that as a possibility as, as a, I think that'll be a logical next step where if they have, uh, if they're spraying products that 
well, I have this drone, let's keep putting it to work. Now, this next question I think is really fun. We go into La La Dreamland. If you had an unlimited budget and time and the weather's perfect, what would you try in terms of conservation? Greg, I'll have you go first. Well, back to what we're, we're going to try for 2024 is, <laughs> is uh, inner the cover crops with, uh, with the finishing up uh, crops. So you're going to make your dream become a reality. Well, too many years have gone by and I wished I'd had, so I guess I'm just going to make it happen next year. Yeah. And when it comes to the economics, because that's where we want to make sure that this is cost effective. So, Greg, when you're looking at making that decision, you know, on paper, how does that look for you with with trying something new and, and purchasing equipment to do that? Well, fortunately for us, we have enough acres to spread the cost out. And I don't think that the that the uh, equipment that we're going to need to do the job is going to be that expensive. So, it, you know, time is more limited, I guess, than than the, than the money part of it on, on something like that, I guess. Now, John, if you had an unlimited budget and time, what conservation practice would you try? Obviously, they're growing for the dairy so much. Um, we're very heavy in alfalfa and, and corn silage, and rye definitely seems to be the best fit that we have for what we want to accomplish. I wish it's not so much a budget thing. I guess I wish I had more time, kind of like a more, we do have, we do put in some winter wheat, not a lot, where you have more of a growing season to try different cover crops and, and maximize different, you know, you get to, there you get to play around with a whole bunch of different cover crops at different purposes. We, we do have some uh, wheat acres, just, just not a lot. And I really like playing around with different mixes and, and stuff and, and seeing what they do. I think that's really, really fun. Last question as we wrap up this episode of Dairy Stream. When there is a challenge or even learning something new, what is your go-to resource? Greg, I'll have you go first. Well, fortunately, you know, I'm in, I'm involved in our watershed group and, you know, there's a number of people that have tried things like John had mentioned, tried things and, and, and had success and failure. So we've always got that group of people that we can draw from. I've got some um, friends that aren't in our watershed that I consider mentors of mine. Um, and then I also have advisors who have some experience with other growers trying to, to do different things. So um, not being afraid to reach out and talk with people about it. And then uh, that's very important, I think. John, from your perspective? I can uh, kind of echo what Greg said and, and, and go off of that. I mean, it, it, it's, it's people like Greg trying something different after for, for the beans or for the, for the grain. I want to I wanna talk with people that have tried it, and I want to talk with people in the area that have tried it. You, you know, I want to, you know, a real-life experience. And I, one of my biggest benefits I see from, you know, water, watershed groups and, and producer-led watershed groups is you get to converse with, with individuals that have, have tried it. You get to learn, um, you know, what, what's good or bad. Obviously, every year is different, but you start compiling it, and sometimes the, these cover crops can take, almost as much management as a, as a regular crop. I mean, you can't just blindly try things and, and hope that it's going to always, always work. I mean, there's the other thing is there's plenty of ways for cover crops to maybe not help if, if you're just blindly doing it. I, I think the positives way outweigh the negatives, but there, there can be a negative. And I love the being able to interact with, with other farmers and talk and hear successes and, and, and negatives and, and learn from them and grow. And I, I think we've seen why, cover crops have taken off because there are so many benefits to them. 
Right. Being connected to your local community and, you know, sharing those stories and experiences at those farmer-led watershed groups has been really impactful for you. I've participated in them and myself and love to see all the participation that happens. Well, we appreciate your efforts, Greg and John, with being environmentally aware and taking steps to improve the land so the next generation can enjoy it. I want to thank you for tuning in to Dairy Stream. Until next time, I'm Joanna Guza for Dairy Stream. The Dairy Business Association and Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative would like to thank you for listening to Dairy Stream. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe and rate Dairy Stream. We value your feedback. And if there's something you'd like to hear, email us at podcast at dairyforward.com.